and when you rise. Amen, you may be seated. Good morning, church. We have an incredible honor today. We get to come to the Word of God and let God himself communicate to us. We have a great privilege today. We get to hear what the Lord has said through his word. We get to come before God and join together and worship him and celebrate what he has done and rejoice in him. We have a great privilege and a great honor today. We also have an amazing privilege that today we're going to begin a new book of the Bible as we're going to be preaching through 2 Timothy. Timothy, I'm sorry. Please go ahead and open your Bibles there if you haven't already. It's going to be a wonderful a wonderful book to study, and I am so excited to do that. When history looks back at our historical moment, they are going to lack many of the riches that most generations in eras before us have enjoyed, at least for the last 2,000 years. Historians typically go for one major resource when they are preparing to study for a specific individual in history. At this point... Almost nobody writes letters. If they do write letters, they tend to be short notes, which contain some kind of encouragement at best. Historians, when they collect letters from these historical figures, they're not like our modern-day letters. They are rich, and they are full, and they have all sorts of incredible things to be said. These letters reveal the most deeply held beliefs of that individual. It shows you exactly what they were thinking. And it also shows their most heartfelt emotions. Just as a quick example, one of the most interesting books I've read in the last several years was about a collection of letters from Galileo's daughter to Galileo. All the letters that were sent from him to her were destroyed because she was in a convent and they would take them and burn them. But she would send letters to him and you get to see how she thought of him. And how he had spoken to her. And you get to know about this man that otherwise we just know kind of a very sterilized picture of who he was. We kind of get a very simple historical view of him. But when we read these letters to him, and as she quotes the letters from him, you see a very genuine picture of this man's heart and of this man's mind. This morning we're beginning the book of Second Timothy. Second Timothy might be the most personal letter that is in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul. In Paul's addresses to this young protege, he sees this young man and writes to him one last time, knowing I might never and probably will never see this young man again. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord that he would come now and that he would instruct our hearts. Our God and Father in heaven, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that this letter was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We thank you, that, thank you that it was breathed out by you and that it is beneficial for our teaching. And Lord, today as we come before your word, I pray that our hearts would have a posture of humility, that we would bow low before it, that we would recognize that you are the one who has reached out to us. When we ran from you, you pursued us, that you sent your son to come and get us, and that through your word you are still teaching us and training us so that if our hearts ever desire to turn and run from you, Lord, that you will instruct us and you will change us and you will renew us and you will give us joy and peace that can only be found in you. So, Father, we pray for those things today. We ask that as the word is preached, you would give us ears to hear that we might remember and know and apply and do these things as worship to you. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The outline of today's sermon is very simple. We're going to follow something as an introduction to the book. We're going to look first at the background of 2 Timothy. We want to know why is this being written, when is it being written, what are the circumstances behind its being written. Secondly, we're going to consider the four main themes that are present here in the book. And finally, we're going to look at Paul's greeting to Timothy that starts the first several verses of 2 Timothy. So let's begin by getting a good sense here of the context of what's happening in this book. In order to do so, we have to rewind the clock a little bit and observe Paul and Timothy's friendship all the way back from its inception. Paul did not often work alone. In fact, we see that he almost never did. He preferred not to. And it was his common practice to plant churches with a team of at least two missionaries. That's how the Holy Spirit set it up, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. You read that the church, under the inspiration of the Spirit, laid hands on two, Paul and Barnabas, and sent them out together to go do the work of evangelism and church planting. His first missionary journey consisted of Paul, Barnabas, and one other that they brought along with them, John Mark. But less than halfway through that mission trip, John Mark deserted them, and he ran back to his mother in Jerusalem. We don't know exactly why. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe it's because he was fearful. Maybe it's a combination of many factors. We're not positive, but we know that Paul was not happy about this taking place. So when Paul and Barnabas were preparing for their second trip to go out into the same regions and revisit those churches, we know that Barnabas wanted this young man to come with them. It was Barnabas's nephew, and he was really quick to forgive him. And Paul was not willing that he should come. Paul vehemently refused. And we see how this plays out. Acts chapter 16, verses 36 through 41. It says, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. There is no way I'm taking John Mark with me again. Now, why am I explaining this to you? Why is it important to know about John Mark when we're talking about Timothy here? This is why. The very next words in the book of Acts are found in the beginning of chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. He wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Silas replaces Barnabas. Now we see that, this is important, Timothy replaces John Mark, because all of the ways that John Mark failed, we are going to see Timothy succeed. Now I highlight this because Many of the warnings and encouragements that Paul gives to Timothy are about perseverance. 
which was the central flaw in John Mark, and it seems like it is a natural temptation in the heart of Timothy as well. But where one of them failed, the other one succeeded. So we're going to be talking a lot about perseverance this week and every week to come while we're still in this book. Timothy would have known the dangers of serving alongside Paul because the, the previous time that Paul was there in this place where he picks up Timothy, what happened to Paul? They grabbed him, they threw him in a pit outside of the city, and then they threw rocks at him until they thought he was dead. In fact, some people think that Timothy might have gotten saved the first time that Paul was there. I doubt that to be true just because they've never met before, but it seems that he would have known there's a big danger about following this guy around. And then Paul, you know the story, after he was stoned, they thought he was dead, he gets back up and he goes in. So Paul has set an example for him about what it means to persevere in the face of danger. Now Timothy is the child of a believing mother, but an unbelieving father. He is circumcised by Paul so that he's not going to be a stumbling block to the Jews. And then Timothy leaves his home and he follows Paul into the dangerous world of being a first century missionary. Now, Paul began sending Timothy on missions to help other churches eventually. We're going to get there in just a moment. But you see that he quickly becomes Paul's right-hand man. Timothy quickly rises through the ranks of just being this guy that they probably had carry the bags to being the guy that is really necessary to the ministry going on. He serves at Paul's side for the majority of the next 12, maybe even 15 years. In fact, we have 13 letters that were written by Paul in our Bible One of them, maybe two of them, were written before he met Timothy. Of the rest, the 11 that are left, 10 of them speak about Timothy and his importance to the ministry. One of, uh, Paul began sending these missionaries uh, out to different churches eventually. So he plants them and then he sends people back to them. Eventually that's going to be one of the things that Timothy does. So during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, he sent Timothy where? to go encourage the Philippian church. And here's how Paul described him at that time. He sends Timothy and says, hey, I want you to know this guy's coming. Let me tell you about him before he gets there. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too might be cheered of news of you. In other words, I want him to bring me good news about you. What's going on? For I have no one like him. I have no one like him. That's a very interesting commendation who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You learn a lot about Timothy in that verse. He's going to travel about 700 miles to you, and he's concerned about your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. So for these 12 to 15 years, he is operating under Paul's authority, serving him like a son would a father. Now, that's a weird thing to say, maybe, for us to kind of grasp here, because we don't understand first century families very well. A father had a job. Whatever he did, like if he was a a stonemason or a carpenter or if he was a politician, whatever you do, your son's going to do that. And they follow you around. They watch exactly how you operate, and then they copy everything so that if you are a good workman, everyone will expect your child will also be a good workman because a father will pass down every detail of his craft to his son. 
It was like a treasured family recipe. It's a secret that nobody else gets but the one who it's passed down to. Now here he's saying, he's like a son to me. He's listened to everything. He's learned everything. And now I am telling you, he is a faithful son to me in the gospel. So after much training, Paul sent Timothy to serve as an elder, even the primary teaching pastor of the church at Ephesus. So the book of 1 Timothy was written to encourage him as he was a new pastor, a young pastor, and to remind him how to serve the church well. Timothy is always presented, though, in that book as being very timid and as being mild and gentle and perhaps even a bit fearful because that's all of the ways that Paul warns him. Don't be fearful. Don't be timid. Even when you're worried, stand out there in faith and the Lord will serve the people through your ministry. So in 1 Timothy, Paul is constantly seeking to put some steel in his backbone by reminding him of the power of God throughout his daily efforts. Now, as a side note, I am incredibly happy that the New Testament shows us some of the sorts of personality differences that people have in ministry. Timothy and Paul are very different individuals, and you see that clearly in the way that they are described saying, wait a minute, what is your life like? That actually is rooted in what? Rightly handling the word of truth. So please don't see these as disconnected from one another. First, you must must have faith. Then you must be grounded in the word of God. And then because of that, you will live out a life of godly obedience before the Lord. The Christian life is... It is an ongoing battle. I don't need to tell you this. You know this. It is an ongoing battle against sin and a striving for holiness. It is a bloody war against the wicked thoughts that tempt our minds long before they even become actions. It is a terrible fight. So Paul commands Timothy, by extension us as well, in chapter 2, verse 22. So what should you do? Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So church, we have to be really careful. We have to be very careful because it is so easy to get comfortable with sin. It is very easy for us to just say, yeah, I've dealt with all the big stuff. I'm just going to let this little thing go, at least for now. And to pretend like that it's not a big deal. We start out by being offended by it when it first comes into our life. Our conscience is very sensitive. And then we run to Christ. But over time, our sin becomes less offensive. And the further that we go into the darkness, the harder it is to see the light that's behind us. So please understand, when you sin, it always affects you deeply. And please understand that when you sin, it always affects more than just you. It always affects those who are around you. It affects those who are unbelievers around you. But specifically today, I want to focus on the fact that it affects everyone in your church. In the Old Testament, we have this this picture of sin in the camp. Right, Get the sin out of the camp because it infects everyone. In the New Testament, we get this picture that is similar from Paul, where he talks, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Do you not know that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump? And here he's talking about the church, and sin is the leaven. It comes into the church, and it infects the whole thing. Now think about this with me for a moment. What in the world is Paul's imagery that he's getting at here? What is he actually saying? It's something like this. If you have two bowls full of dough that you've been working on, you've been making this bread, you've been making the dough, and you, you roll it around, you put it into a bowl, you have one bowl here with the same dough, but it has a little bit of leaven, and this one that doesn't, right now they look exactly the same. They taste the same, they smell the same, 
because leaven or yeast is odorless, it is tasteless, it's indetectable, it's a fungus that multiplies and festers and swells. And eventually, if you just let it sit for a couple hours, you're going to come back and realize, wait a minute, something is very different about these two, and it's because one of them has this invisible fungus growing inside of it. That is the picture that Paul is giving. He is essentially saying that you must deal with sin, and if you will not deal with it personally, it must be handled by the church so that the whole church is not destroyed, or so that the holiness of the church is preserved. Sin is dangerous. It is always dangerous, and it is dangerous not just for you, but communally it is dangerous for the whole body. I like the way that Tim Challies put it. He said, as a fowler can hold a bird by one wing, Satan can hold you by just one sin. And just as a single sin left in your life is dangerous, it is as dangerous as a single rattlesnake left in your bed. Don't think it's a small thing. If there was a rattlesnake in my bed, I would not be there very long. We need to recognize sin is very serious. Or as John Owen put it, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Church, we need to be reminded, just like Timothy, to run from youthful passions. And where do we go? Run to Jesus, who alone can satisfy our souls. Now, the fourth form of persevering that we will see here, in everywhere in this book, actually, is persevering through trials. Paul is writing from prison. He is himself experiencing a major trial, and he is not writing this with just some kind of an intellectual background saying, well, if this were to ever happen, I don't know what that would really be like, but here's what maybe you should do. He is writing out of suffering to somebody who is not currently suffering, but will eventually experience suffering, and he's writing to this young man saying, you must persevere through trials. Paul, being under in this prison, was no longer in house arrest. His first arrest in Rome was a house arrest. We see at the, at the very end of the book of Acts, I love this story. He's in this house, and people keep coming to him to hear the gospel, whereas he has been going out over and over and over, going out, going out, going out. Now, the people are coming to him saying, what is this teaching that you're telling people? And they want to know. And so he's there in, in this house arrest, probably in chains, and people are coming to him, and he just proclaims the gospel to them. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful picture. He is not in the house arrest when he writes the book of Second Timothy. He is in an actual prison in the land of Rome. This was not pleasant. Uh, over the past couple weeks, there's been something very interesting in the United States. About 800,000 people were involved in a nationwide prison strike. Now, in, in the New York Times, there was an article entitled, Serving Time Should Not Mean Prison Slavery. And the author says, Too often, we treat prisoners as outcasts instead of fellow workers. I think I understand what he means, but it's kind of confusing. Because that's exactly what prisoners are. They are cast out of the freedom of society, and they are put into a prison for a reason. They are, it's, they're there. Prisons are there to remove people who are dangerous and to protect the larger community. Now, I don't know all the details, so there might be some legitimate reasons for these protests and these prison strikes. But just a little bit that I do know got me thinking. Our prisons are pretty nice compared to what Paul was experiencing. In Paul's prison, they didn't have a workout room. They did not have the ability to have a job in there. They didn't, 
They didn't have a TV. They didn't have their own cell. They were not treated well by the guards. They did not have rights. In Rome, you are guilty until you are proven innocent. And while they are there, in fact, most Roman prisons don't feed you. If you want food, somebody has to come from the outside and bring it to you, which makes it all the more poignant when he says, everyone has deserted me, that only Luke is with me now. It's from this position of suffering that Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Timothy, I'm suffering right now because the world hates the gospel. You are not currently, but I want you to know that is coming. It is on its way because if you really live for Jesus, persecution will take place. That is true for them. That is true for us. Now, our persecution by the grace of God is not like that. But globally, persecution is very a major issue right now. I, I encourage you to read just a little bit about the persecuted church around the world and see what is taking place in, in these countries where the gospel is not freely able to be preached. And the people proclaim it faithfully anyway. If you want to grow in your faith, one of the best ways is to pray for and see what's happening in the persecuted church who are displaying this kind of perseverance that Paul is encouraging Timothy to talk about or to, to, to hold fast to. We're going to talk a lot about that here in the book of 2 Timothy, but I want you to see that he is lovingly, Paul is lovingly preparing Timothy for the difficulties that are going to arise in his own personal life and in the life of his church. Paul warns him about trials. He warns him about false teachers. He warns him about sinful church members. He warns him to be uh, aware of those apostates who were wolves in sheep's clothing. And he warns him about the, the dangers of the world who hate the gospel. He does not want Timothy to be blissfully unaware because he does not want Timothy to be dismally unprepared. He wants him to know what is coming. So God allows us to experience trials. He even sends them to us. God is not being hateful or unkind when he brings this kind of suffering into our lives. He is actually lovingly strengthening us and sanctifying us and making us so that by the end of that trial, we will look more like Jesus. This past Tuesday, I was speaking to a brother, a Christian who is not part of our church, and he was sharing with me about his daughter, uh, how she had gone under a surgery, a very serious open heart surgery. And he was explaining, trying to explain to me, like, what was going on in his heart as he was seeing his daughter open on that table and all these tubes everywhere. And I was thinking to myself when I left that conversation, what I would tell my daughter if she had to go, go under a surgery like that. What would I talk to Petra about? She's five. What would I say to her? How would I convince her that the pain and difficulty of this surgery is actually worth it? How could she understand how bad the internal problem is if she can't feel anything wrong? It's just in there. How could I convince her to trust the hands of these doctors that she doesn't really know well? How could I make it clear to her that this operation, though it's painful, will actually result in her life being more full? So just to clarify, my daughter is fine, uh, by God's grace. But there is such a clear parallel here in the sense that God is operating on us for our good. We often mistake his surgical scalpel, though, for a weapon of violence against us. We see trials as the enemy, whereas we should view them as the hand of God bringing them into our life for a reason, for a purpose. So Paul is teaching Timothy how to see what God is doing and how to respond to those things properly with faithfulness, with joy, and with thanksgiving. <clears throat> Likewise, God is going to use this book, I think, for us to prepare us for trials. 
trials are coming. Like I said at the outset, I think we are at a very nice time in our church in the sense that there are some minor trials taking place in, in the lives of the people here. But to my knowledge, they are very small compared to what many people suffer. We are currently in a place of peace. Now, we don't know when. <clears throat> we don't know what these trials are going to look like. But I pray that God will prepare us well through this book of Second Timothy for them. Now, this time, we're going to move forward to our final point of the morning. We're going to spend just a few minutes examining the first five verses of Second Timothy and apply them. We've already looked at a few of those verses previously. <clears throat> and many of the themes that I'm about to talk about in these first five verses are repeated later. So we're not going to focus on all of them. But instead, we're just going to apply them in three very specific ways. Follow along in your own Bible. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, <clears throat> whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, day and night, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Now, in, in Greek, in letter writing at this time, this is a very standard kind of greeting. In fact, if you parallel this with 1 Timothy chapter 1, the first five verses, it's almost identical in many ways. This is going to establish the bond between the author and the recipient. It's going to establish the relationship that they have and how they know one another and to what extent they are in alignment. So if there was a problem, he would just call it out right here. If there is a major issue, I'm writing to you so that I might show you that you're wrong, he would normally say it right here. But he doesn't because they are simpatico, as it were. They are on the same page. There's much to be said about these verses, but I want to simply exhort you in the following three ways. First, pursue godly friendships. Mark Dever often says your relationship with God is personal, but it is absolutely by no means private. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called to a covenant community. You are not to be, as Ed Moore would say, a lone ranger Christian out there doing things by yourselves. You are called to covenant community with other believers. Much of what was being taught earlier in our pastoral exhortation by Mike Neglia he, Pastor Mike was saying, we need to have unity. These are commands of the New Testament, but you can't do that if you're not in community with the body of Jesus Christ. So in this book, I want you to see that the formal membership with one another does not negate the need for deep personal connection with one another. It's not enough to merely have your name in the membership roles of the church. You are also called to serve alongside and know and be part of one another. Paul makes this clear that Timothy wept when Timothy left Paul. When they separated, they were weeping. As Paul says that he has a deep desire to see Timothy, I remember your tears. I remember how you cried when you left. So what do I mean by pursue godly friendships? First of all, I mean that you are required to initiate them. Paul pursued a friendship with Timothy. The world's understanding of friendship is bad. I mean, it is pretty bad right now. I mean, Facebook, I think, might have 
put the last nail in the coffin of what it means to be a friend with someone in our culture. The world doesn't really understand friendship in many ways, but there is one way in which I think the world is actually spot on in the way that they understand what friendship is. They believe that friendship, true friendship, is built on what two people have in common. And I believe that's actually very true. That is how all friendships develop. It may be that you have the same favorite band or the same doctor or the same alma mater. It could simply be that you are the same age or were in the same class at school or something of that nature. Please understand, if you are a Christian, you have more in common with a saved man from the Kauai tribe of Papua New Guinea who does not eat the same food or speak the same language or dress the same or have anything in common with you outwardly you have more in common with that saved man than you do with the person who lives across the street, who shares all of your same interests, who drives the same car, and say, spends the same amount on his mortgage. You have something very deeply in common with a believer, no matter where they are, or what they look like, or what they sound like. If you are saved, you share the same story. You were dead, and now you're alive. You have the same father. God has brought you in. See what kind of love the father has for us that he has called us children. And so we are. If you are in Christ, you're both citizens of heaven. Your citizenship is not here. What, what country is your, is your country of origin? Well, technically, I'm an American, but my citizenship is the same with those people that I love from Brazil and Italy and China and wherever they originate from because our citizenship is primarily in heaven, not here. So whatever flag we wave, that's fine, and we can love the countries that we live in, to God be the glory, but... Our primary citizenship is shared with all believers. And if you are in Christ, it says you have the mind of Christ, as does every other believer. So you can find commonality deeper with them than you can with anyone else. As C.S. Lewis once said, friendship is the greatest of worldly treasures. Now, I'm not saying that it will always be easy to to become close with one another. This kind of deep level of friendship that I'm speaking about, a godly kind of friendship, is not always easy in the church. Some people are difficult to love. That's just the case. It is true. Some people are difficult to love for anyone, and some people are difficult to love because they have the exact opposite of personalities from what you do. But you are called and commanded to love them, just as we heard earlier from Pastor Mike. So what is my point? I'm encouraging everyone here to be highly intentional in deepening your relationships with other people within this body. So much so that if a person from our church were to move a thousand miles away, like Timothy had from Paul, you would still regularly pray for them and write to them and love them. Not everyone is going to be equally close, and that is totally fine. That is natural. But this community is your family. This is the family of God. We are part of his family. And th this kind of open and loving, mentoring, discipling relationship that is shared between Paul and Timothy, that is not accidental. That must be fostered and developed. And it, it is not something that will just spring up by accident. Which brings us now to our second application point. Pursue godly fellowship. Now, godly fellowship is what occurs when believers are together. Paul says, I remember your tears... I long to see you. As we see in chapter 4, Paul knows this whole time as he is writing, he is about to die and he is about to go see Jesus. That is incredible. And he is excited about the idea of receiving the crown of glory he talks about in chapter 4. There is something joyful about that. Yet, he still loves 
fellowshipping and being with Timothy in person. Paul explains in verse 4 that being together with Timothy would do what? It would fill him with joy. Paul doesn't already have joy in Christ. No, of course he does. He has joy inexpressible and full of glory, he says. But he is still desirous to have a different form of joy that can only come when brothers dwell together in loving fellowship and unity. So I resonate with that. I get that. I understand that. My wife and I live here. Our families live very far away. All of the people that we grew up with live very far far away. This is our community. This is our family. This is our home. And I want you to know I resonate with that because I find joy in being with the people of God. So before moving on, I briefly want to define more carefully what I mean when I say fellowship. If your time together with your Christian friends looks identical to your time together with your unchristian friends, then that is not Christian fellowship. That is just a social event or gathering. Christian fellowship means that you are pointing one another to Jesus. It means that you are stirring one another up towards love and good works based on faith. It means that you are teaching one another and rebuking one another and praying for one another and bearing one another's burdens. Fellowship is not merely being nice or friendly during the greeting times that we occasionally have at church. It means that you are pouring out of yourself and putting others before yourself. So pursue that kind of fellowship. Pursue genuine Christian fellowship. Pursue it through community groups and men's breakfasts and church picnics and seek to be together with the people of God as regularly as you can. And if you can't, your schedule is just crazy. We understand that we've got these four little kids. Everywhere, every day is crazy. If there are days when you can't, that's okay. But still, I want to encourage you, we have this incredible technology that the Lord has allowed to exist in our time. Text the people of God. Use social media to the glory of God instead of against his glory, as oftentimes happens very easily. Write letters like this one, meaningful, deep, rich letters. And one of the most encouraging things that I can tell you is that as a pastor, maybe every, this is maybe every month or so, I get a little card in the mail from Jenny Cotto. And, and thank you, Jenny. She sends them to me. And she will encourage me and just say thank you or, or give me some kind of a, a brief encouragement about being in the ministry. That's a great joy to me, and it causes my heart to be filled with, with encouragement. And it's, it's not something that is that difficult to do, to, to write a note and put a stamp on it and put it in the mail. But it seems like being faithful like that is really hard for me. It seems like being faithful to encourage the brothers when I don't see them, if they're out of sight, they're out of mind. And that is not the way we are to live as we see here in this book. So seek out Christian fellowship. And when you can't be present together, be encouraging from a distance as Paul is here. Point number three, finally, last one for the day. Pray for your Christian brothers and sisters. Now, there are many things that are in these verses that are repeated or expressed in multiple ways later in the book. For example, we're going to discuss the role of Christian parenting. We see Lois and Eunice here in this, in this book. Really important stuff. But for now, our final application point is just this. Pray for your Christian brothers and sisters. This stuff sounds really easy. The stuff that I'm saying today is very basic, very foundational, very simple, just introductory stuff to this book. This is hard. Prayer is hard. Consistent faithful, being on your knees before the Lord is difficult because you are distracted and so am I. There are many things that try to allure us away from it. But I want you to understand that Paul tells Timothy in this book, quote, I constantly pray for you night and day. 
I confess that I have a tendency to focus all of my prayers on the people that I know are struggling. Just, just to be honest, I will see somebody who I know they have a trial in their life, and I just pray for them and their needs. And so the people who I think in my mind are doing well, the ones who are strong in their faith, the ones who seem to be living well for Christ, I tend not to pray for them as I should. So I ask you, as open as I possibly can, to pray for me regularly. Pray for me. I need it. And that's not a selfish thing for me to say, because what I'm telling you is I am in desperate need of the grace of God daily in my life. And I'm asking you humbly, please do that for me. And I hope that we are all coming to a better understanding that we need that from one another and that we will give that for one another, that we would pray for one another constantly and fervently like Paul prayed for Timothy. So here's an easy way for us to begin doing that. Uh, We are in the process of putting together a church directory. It should be done in the next couple of weeks. It'll start populating that table back there, and we'll have names on them for each of the people in the church. You can take those home. It will be a directory for you to use, and it will contain contact information for everybody in the church. But it will also serve as a very helpful handbook for your times and my time of prayer. Just go through a couple of families each day and pray for them. And if you come to somebody and say, wait a minute, I don't know that person. This is a relatively small church. We're pretty small. We should know everyone. So if you don't know them, make a point to get to know them. I don't know who this person is. Or if you come to somebody and you say, wait a second, I don't know what this person's prayer needs are. Wow, their phone number is right there. I'll just text them and I'll find out. How can I pray for you today? And so point number one and point number two become very natural, grounded in this effort of prayer for one another. We begin to develop deeper Christian friendships, godly friendships. We begin to to aim ourselves towards fellowship with one another. And if you don't know how to pray at all, if you don't know Jesus Christ at all, if you've never been saved by him and you're wondering, what in the world are you even talking about today? Please, before you go, come speak with me because I want to share with you what it means to be part of the family of God and how Jesus Christ has made a way for us to be there. So I look forward to looking to the book of 2 Timothy to teach us, to train us, to rebuke us, to change our hearts. I know that the Lord is going to use his inspired word to build us up, to help us, to help us persevere, to draw us close to Christ, and to draw us closer in Christ-like community. I'm looking forward to all of that, and I hope that you are as well. I'm thankful for what God has taught me through this word today, and I hope that he's taught you much as well. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we did have a great honor in just hearing from your word. Lord, I pray that as we go, these things would be striking to us, that they would be meaningful to us, that they would be rich for us, that they would be uh, applicable to us, that we would put these things on like they are garments that we would wear, that we would, instead of just walking out unchanged, that by your spirit, we would be more like Jesus. God, I pray that all of these things that we are about to encounter in this book about perseverance, Lord, I pray that you would build that in us, that you would instill that in us, that just like Paul was seeking to do with Timothy, you would give us a backbone of steel as we stand against the world and what it stands for, but also also for the world as we proclaim the gospel. I ask God that you would please help us through your word as a church to grow and to be conformed into the image of Christ. Amen. Amen. At this time, the